Okay. What we're going to do, for starters, is we are going to have a small little discussion about Torah in general, briefly, and then we will get back eventually to the Tanya. The Torah has many layers to it. So, for instance, if you look in your text and you'll see it says, there's a verse that's quoted, footnote one in the text, which is um, from Deuteronomy 21.21, where the verse says, Thou shalt root out the evil from within you. Does anyone know what that verse is referring to? Because here in the text, what is it referring to? It's talking about executing people who have sinned. And in the verse, and in the Tanya, what is it talking about? It's talking about removing the evil within one's own animal soul, right? There's a sort verse in, the, in chapter 10 that we already read, in paragraph 40, and you shall root out evil from within you. Text, yeah, and if you open up a chumash and you read that verse in context, what is that verse talking about? It's talking about executing people who have sinned. What is it talking about as it's quoted in Tanya? It's talking about removing the evil within the animal soul. Are those the same thing? No. No. So, does that mean that Tanya is taking the quote out of context? It would seem that way. Okay, so since you're so insightful, would you care to explain? I don't know why. I don't know why. How did I start off this discussion? Talking about the Torah. And what about the Torah? I said something. See people paying attention. There's many levels to it. Okay? The same text can be read on multiple levels. And what that means is that depending on the way you're reading it, it's going to be understood differently. And because Hashem's wisdom is infinite, which of these different levels is the correct one? They're all the correct one. Okay. Now, does that mean you can just make the text say anything you want? No. No. Because the idea is that it has to reflect something that Hashem actually intended to convey. But I think it should be fairly obvious that if someone is like Moshe Rabbeinu was learning and studying the Torah, he would be discovering things that would be relevant to him, right? And if a small child in kindergarten is studying Torah, he's going to be discovering things that is relevant to him, right? And so clearly they're not reading the Torah on the same level, right? Okay. That means that it's kind of, it's important to know when you're learning a text, um, what overtly level that text is aimed at. Now the Chumash, the, 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 the text of the scripture itself is not aimed at any particular level, which means anybody who learns it will have to learn it on a level that's appropriate to them. Okay? But let's say, for instance, if you're learning the code of Jewish law, what is that text aimed at? What kind of level of understanding? What? I want you to not use Hebrew words. If I open up a code of Jewish law, how am I supposed to take what it says there? Literally. Quite literally, right? Right? 
It's, it's talking about like physical things that I'm supposed to do and not to do, right? Okay. Um, if I'm studying a text like the Tanya, clearly I'm meant to understand things as they are talking about some kind of spiritual reality within a person, right? That's clearly what the text is, is aimed at. Okay. So, but that doesn't mean that the same text can't carry with it multiple layers. So now, there's this, there's this terminology in the Tanya, which is a righteous person who suffers, a completely righteous person, an incompletely righteous person, you also have with a wicked person. That terminology is not the um, innovation of the Alter Rebbe. That terminology actually is from the Talmud. So what I would like to do is talk a little about where this terminology comes from, put it in some context, and then understand what the Alter Rebbe is doing with that terminology, which will help make the text, um, I think, a little bit clearer and also appreciate the depth of what's going on. The Talmud and the Tractate of Brachas has a question, which is Mipnei Ma, which literally means because of what? Tzadik Veralei, there is a Tzadik, a righteous person, Veralei, Ralei literally would mean here, who suffers, there's evil to him, meaning bad things happen to this person. Tzadik Vetoivlei, and there's righteous people, who good things happen. Rasha Vetoivlei, there's a wicked person that good stuff happens to them. Rasha Veralei, and a wicked person that bad stuff happens to them, right? So this is a very detailed way of asking the age-old question, why do bad things happen? to good people, but it's fleshing out all four options, right? There's righteous people who suffer, righteous people who prosper, righteous, wicked people who prosper, wicked people who suffer. Why? That's the Talmud's question. Now, by the way, I would like to point out, um, for those of us who are familiar with the Tanya, know that there's this fifth category called the Bainani. Was that mentioned here? It's not mentioned, okay. That's also Talmudic terminology. It shows up from other places. We're not going to worry about that right now, okay? And the Talmud gives an answer. They want the Talmud's answer is. Why are there righteous people who suffer and righteous people who prosper? Wicked people suffer, wicked people prosper. They want the Talmud's answer is. The Talmud's answer is it depends if the righteous person is the child of a righteous person or if the righteous person is the child of a wicked person and conversely with a wicked person. So if you're a righteous person who's the child of a righteous person, you will prosper in life. But if you're the righteous person, the descendant of a wicked person, you will suffer. If you're the righteous person who is the descendant of a, sorry, if you're a wicked person, descendant of a righteous person, you will prosper. But if you're a wicked person, descendant of a wicked person, you will suffer. That's what the Talmud says. Then the Talmud objects to that answer because that's what the Talmud does. Those of you who don't know, the Talmud always um, objects to things and refines them. Okay? And the Talmud brings a different answer, which is the accepted answer, the conclusive answer, which is if a person is completely righteous, they prosper. If a person is not completely righteous, they will suffer. If a person is completely wicked, they will suffer. If they're not completely wicked, they will prosper. Now that requires an explanation, right? Because seemingly the incomplete, the per, incompletely wicked person is far worse than the incompletely righteous person. So why is the person who is wicked prospering and the person who is righteous suffering? Do I need to make a chart? Does that help or should I... Yes? No? Okay. Do you have a marker? I'll make a chart very no, quickly. I'm, I was saying... No, we don't need a chart. Good. Okay. We can keep so all is, four levels in the hand. the idea hand. that because the incompletely righteous person <laughs> yeah, is coming from... You there. do want a chart? Okay. Okay. Um, should I use Hebrew or English? Hebrew is easier for me because there's fewer words and fewer spelling mistakes, but if English is better for you, I will do it in English. I think English. English. 
English. Okay. So. Okay. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, okay. So you have, we'll just go in this way. Tzadik, we all know what Tzadik means? Tzadik is righteous, right? So. Person's completely a Tzadik. Then they prosper. I find that horrible spelling, so if you want to correct my spelling at any point, I will not be offended. Sadek prospers and not complete Sadek suffers. And then you have someone who's not complete. Russia, we all know what Russia is. Russia is a wicked person. And they prosper. And then you have a complete Russia. Therefore, they suffer. Now, the obvious question is: This person, the Nakhvitzadik, is obviously better than the Nakhvitzadik Russia, right? So, why is this person suffering and this person prospering? Okay. So, the commentators of the Talmud explain that there are two worlds. There's this world and the next world. If you're complete, if you're a complete tzaddik, you're perfectly righteous. Is there any reason for you to suffer? No. No. So that's straightforward, right? If you're a complete Russia, complete wicked person, is there any reason for you to prosper? No. No. Right? Basic notion of ward and punishment in Judaism. I know Hasidim don't talk about this a lot, but there is such a thing. And if you're really bad, and there's, no, no, there's nothing you've done counting in your favor, you deserve to suffer. And if everything is good, you deserve to prosper, this world and the world to come. The more complicated question is what happens if everything is not 100%? So if you're overall a righteous person, but you've got some de- defects, so the suffering takes place in which world? This world. this world. So that you're able to prosper. But if you're overall a wicked person, but you have some good things going in your favor, Hashem rewards you in this world, so you don't get, you're not entitled to anything in the next world. So it turns out suffering in this world so as not to suffer in the next world is better than prospering in this world and losing any of your merits for the world to come. Mm-hmm. That's the basic understanding of that section of the Talmud. Okay? So not complete suffers in this world and prospers in the next world? Suffer, right. The, right. So now if you just add, right, this is the thing you have to add, right? Is you have to add a column and say this is talking about this world. This world. And then you add a column for world to come. Right? And this one prospers, prospers, suffers, and suffers. So it turns out the complete rush is all around losing out on life, right? The complete tzaddik has everything wonderful. And the, the tzaddik is not complete, the rush is not complete. What's shifting is where God is rewarding and where God is punishing. If you're righteous, so God will reward you with the ultimate reward, which is the world to come, and punish you with a temporary punishment, which is in this world. 
And if you're overall wicked, he reverses it. Your punishments are in the world to come and your reward is in this world. This is the straightforward meaning of that section of Talmud and this is where the altar is lifting the terminology of perfect tzaddik, tzaddik who suffers incomplete incomplete tzaddik, tzaddik, okay, all that terminology is being lifted out of that discussion. Just similar to the way he lifted out the text of executing sinners and start talking about the inner parts of our animal souls. Yes? In chapter 12. <laughs> Which chapter are we in? <laughs> yes. Although I might mention it, just so we don't like left completely hanging. But it really is discussed in chapter 12. Okay. It's disgusting? It's disgust in chapter 12. It's not disgusting. <laughs> All right. Good? Does that make sense? Okay. Now, is the Tanya a book discussing the theology regarding reward and punishment and human suffering? No. So is the Altarbe using this terminology in this way? No. No. Okay. Now, I would just like to point something out, before, which is sometimes that, when you, is that there is actually a bridge between two different levels where you can see that they're, even though they're talking in two different levels, it's actually, in essence, very related. Is it true that every person who's completely righteous prospers in this world? No. Is it true that everyone's completely wicked suffers in this world? What does that even mean? Oh. So, for this we have to understand is that prospering and suffering are not objective phenomena that occur outside the person, but are subjective things that are experienced by the person. Right? Yeah. Okay. For instance, if you lose money, are you suffering? Depends how you are. It depends how you experience that loss of money, right? Okay, so could you have a completely wicked person who has money and health and power and is suffering? Yeah. And could you have a completely righteous person who has none of those things and is prospering? Yeah. So there's a famous story of Zusha of Anapoli, one of the students of the Magad Mizrich, good friend of the Al-Zareb, he actually wrote one of the few approbations, there's only two of them actually, so half of them, <laughs> for the Tanya. Um, and he... Um, he was once one, once one of the students of the Magid came and asked how do I, how do I thank God for, for suffering the same way I thank God for blessings and he said well you should go to my student Rebzusha and he went to Rebzusha and Rebzusha's life was um, he was very poor his roof leaked his children had what to eat he was very very poor destitute um, and this person asked Rebzusha, how do you bless God for, for the bad, the way you bless God for the good? And Rebzusha says, well, I don't know. He says, well, the, the Rebbe, the Magid, told, sent me to you. He says, that's strange. I've never had a bad day in my life. Mm. Why? Because he didn't experience it that way, right? So, it's a, so now, could you be given tremendously wonderful things in the world to come, but not experience them in a positive way? Well, think about it like this, right? Let's say you are given the opportunity to study Torah. And you discover how little you know. And instead of rejoicing at the opportunity to learn, you're sitting wallowing in the misery of being exposed to your own ignorance. Right? So you're being given something positive and you're experiencing it what manner? Misery. Misery, right? 
So if we understand, so as a bridge, before we move to the, the Tanya, what I want us to understand is that if we're going to take that, that Talmudic text, that Gemara seriously on its face, we're forced to think about it and realize that prospering and suffering is not about the material facts, but about how those are experienced by the person. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So what I've done is we moved it from, oh, completely righteous people are always wealthy to, as our sages say, who is wealthy, who is satisfied with his lot. Right? Okay, now why would a completely righteous person always be prospering? Well, a completely righteous person is, their whole life is wrapped around their connection with, and Hashem is always available, right? It can never be taken from you. So, in this world, you can't be, you're prospering in the world to come. Hashem is more revealed, right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the incompletely righteous person apparently has some other aspect of them that's not just God-oriented, right? And so there's some element of suffering. But that is the dominant aspect or the secondary aspect of their life. Secondary. Right? Which is why when they get to the world to come, right, they're able to experience the revelations of God entirely positively because that's, that's the primary thing that they're focusing on. Whereas if you look at the non-completely righteous, non-completely righteous Russia, not completely Russia, the non-complete Russia, the, this person, they're prospering because things are working out for them in life, right? That has nothing to do with God. So now what happens when they leave this world and it's all about God? What happened to their, to their feeling like they're you know, accomplished in their profession and, and all, you know, there's no ice cream in heaven, you know? Not, it's not so pleasant when you discover that ice cream is kind of a waste of your life. Mm. On the other hand, right, the complete Russia, even when he has stuff, he's not able to enjoy it. The, 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 the wickedness inside of him eats away, so he's not even able to feel positive about the, the, the material goods that he has. So if we add that layer, we've already moved it from some sort of an external fact to an internal experience, which is a bridge to how the altar is going to be taking these terms, Okay. Now, in chapter 10, he only focuses on the tzaddik, okay? okay? So what I want to do is I'm going to go back and use the board because I think it's actually this part, I was going to use the board anyway because it's really important. And I want to, outside the text, before we go into the text, show you how the Altar is using the terminology differently, but yet it's actually very similar, but just on a different level. Um, and then we'll go into the text, okay? So the thing that I want you to remember is like this. What's the causality? Is that because of this, because you're a complete tzaddik, that's why you prosper in this world. Because you're not a complete tzaddik, that's why you suffer, right? So this left-hand column is the cause, and this right-hand column is the effect, okay? So now, let me erase it.
then we have prosperous and suffers. So here it's important to know the Hebrew. How the actual Hebrew for the words prosper and suffers uses the words tov lo. Tov means good and lo means to him. Or ralo. Now, in Hebrew, these terms tovlo and ralo are much more open-ended into the meaning than the term suffer and prosper. Right? Any notion of attributing the good to someone could be said tovlo. So something good could happen to him, he's experiencing good, he owns good, right? And the same thing with the, with the word ra, ra being evil, okay? So we're going to translate it that way. Subjugated. No, oh, used converted also, but I don't like the word converted. Okay. In other words, being the godly soul does something, and as far as that's concerned, the, the evil has been removed. But that removal can be understood as a subjugation of the evil or a 
transformation of the evil. Well, if the evil of the animal soul has been transformed, then can you really say that that tzaddik has an evil in him anymore? What used to be evil has now become good. But if the evil has been subjugated, you have to say he still has that evil within himself. It's just, it's his. He owns it. He's in charge of it. He's subjugated it. But then, what is this? What's causing that difference? What's causing this evil to be transformed, but this evil to really be subjugated? Well, because here he's doing something in an incomplete manner. Here he's doing something in a complete manner. So I will give it away. So it'll be clear, right? And this is going to be... If there's complete love, if the godly soul is complete love of Hashem, what is the effect going to be on the animal soul? It will transform the evil in the animal soul into good. But if the love of the tzaddik, the love of the godly soul is incomplete, then what effect does it have on the evil? It just subjugates it. Okay? But, but now, this is going to be very important. There is a certain... Is any kind of love going to be good enough? In other words, we're saying love is complete, you're saying love is incomplete. I mean, all of us love Hashem on some level, right? Does it mean all of us are at least here the complete tzaddik? No. What's the minimum threshold to get on this list? Is that the love of Hashem is so powerful and reaches the animal soul that what does it do to the evil within? It's completely. If your love isn't on that list, it's not even complete love. As far as the as far as being a tzaddik is concerned, it's as if you don't love Hashem at all. I'm going to illustrate this with a little bit of analogy. Okay. If someone were to tell you that it's really important to them to do something, something is really important to them. What's the first place you would look to see if it's really important to them? In his actions. Yeah. And if they don't actually do it, what do we conclude? It's not actually important. Yeah, it's not, I wouldn't say it's not, so in like, on some basic level, it's not really important. Mm. It's maybe aspirationally important, right? But there's a basic threshold. Things that I don't do are clearly not important to me on, mm. a, on a fundamental level. Mm. This is a scary thing when you start thinking about that, honestly, because what are the things that you always do within like normal things, right? You always eat, you always sleep, right? You always defend your ego, right? If you maybe have certain things you really care about, you, you do those, right? But there's a lot of stuff that we acclaim that is really important to us, and yet we're not in the mood. When it's inconvenient, what happens to those things? So then, are those things the things that are really important to us? On a low basic level. On a- on a, if we're going to be really honest about something's really important. Now, I might wish it was important to me. I might value that thing. And stuff, right? I'm not, I'm not, and that, that counts for something. Yeah? Okay. So, the love of a tzaddik makes Hashem, this is what makes them a tzaddik, is that the love for Hashem is the only thing that's really important to them. If it's the only thing that's important to them, can they feel desires to anything else? No. And so if you feel the desire for anything that's not godly, then that clearly means that Hashem is not the only thing important to you. And already you're not in the realm of tzaddik. Your love is not a love of a tzaddik. It's not a tzaddik's kind of love. It's another kind of love. What makes the love of a tzaddik righteous or correct, right? because that's what righteous means, 
is that, and this is again something that's a little bit uncomfortable. Is God, which of these two statements is more objectively correct? God is the most important thing or God is the only important thing? The latter. Does that make sense why that's, right? Mm-hmm. God, God is real because, there's no because, I mean God is real. And everything else is real only because it partakes of God's reality, right? So you can't really put God on a scale with anything else, right? The minute you're considering the importance of God, everything else, by definition, Falls away. You know, either it's part of the importance of God or it's meaningless. So if I feel like God is important to me alongside other things, I've somehow have a corrupted notion of God. You could argue if you wanted to be a little bit, a little bit mean, you could say there's something almost idolatrous about that, right? You're equating things to God. You're saying, God is important to me and this is also important to me. And now it's a question, which is more important, which is less important. For the tzaddik, is there ever the question of more important or less important? No. The love of Hashem is such that it is absolute. Hashem is absolute and they love Hashem in an absolute way. But within that, apparently that, that kind of a love can be complete or incomplete. That kind of love could either have a transformative effect on the animal soul or it can have a subjugating effect on the animal soul. Okay? I have a quick question. What's the, why did you write God and then write because, yeah, because, the, the, because the tzaddik, when we talk about the term tzaddik, yeah? When we talk about the term tzaddik, and we're saying the tzaddik's complete and the tzaddik is incomplete, what are we talking about? How the godly soul love. love is manifest. If the godly soul's love is manifest in a complete way, what's the result going to be on the animal soul? Complete transformation. It's going to be transformed over. And if the godly soul's love is manifest in an incomplete way, then what will be the effect on the animal soul? Subjugated. It'll be subjugated. If I love Hashem, but not in a way that Hashem is the only important thing to me, is that really the godly soul's love at all? Mm-hmm. Not really. Could you have a part of the godly soul's love? That whole thing? That's what we get into what a vein is, or is that's later chapters, okay? So it's, how does the godly soul love Hashem? That Hashem is the only thing that's important to it. If that love is manifest in an incomplete way, but that love is manifest, you feel you love for Hashem in that way. So what does that do to the animal soul? It subjugates it. But if you have, feel that kind of love in a complete way, what's going to happen? It's going to transform it, right? So, the, so now the Gemara's question is quite literally like this, right? You can now go back to the Gemara. The Gemara says, why are there some righteous people? I'm just going to do the righteous person. Why are there some... Why, uh, why are there some righteous people whose animal souls have been completely transformed and some righteous people's animal souls have only been sub- subjugated, right? Or if I make it more, why are there people who love Hashem absolutely but, and, and that transforms their animal soul and some people love Hashem absolutely but it doesn't transform the animal soul and only subjugates it. What's that? And the Gemara says, well, it depends. If you love Hashem absolutely and your parents also did, that has the effect to affect your animal soul. But if, you're, if you love Hashem absolutely but your parents didn't, then your animal soul would only be subjugated. And the Gemara rejects that for whatever reason. And the Gemara concludes there's nothing to do with your parents that has to do with. If your love of Hashem, that kind of absolute love, is complete, whatever complete means, it will have what kind of effect on your animal soul? Transformative. Transformative. But if it's incomplete, whatever incomplete means, it will not have a transformative effect. It will only have a subjugating effect. 
Now, let's then think back to the simple meaning. If your animal soul has been transformed, could you suffer in this world? No, because everything is God. But if your animal soul is not complete, not transformed, it's been subjugated, is there some part of you that's suffering? Yeah. So it turns out this deeper meaning, is a, it's reading it on a deeper level, but it fits into the straightforward meaning. If you go a little bit deeper. Yeah. Okay? So this is what music Torah has multiple le- levels to it. You read this, you're like, yeah, some people have money, some people don't have money. But you go a little bit deeper, like, it doesn't make sense. You have to read the Mars board, the subjective experience. The Alter Rebbe is talking about the internal dynamics of the souls, but once you understand that, that you could read that back into the text of the Gemara and it actually illuminates the straightforward meaning. Someone whose animal soul is completely transformed and the world is a godly place. There's no, you know, the world is full of godliness. There's no, there's no there, they have something, they don't have something. Like how do they, in everything, there is the way that connects you to God. It brings out God. So in everything, there is no, there's no suffering. But if the animal soul on some level still has that evil, that evil element is... Is suffering. It desires. It has a desire for something that isn't godly, and that desire is not always going to be met. Okay. So. So, the, the purpose of doing this is so that you have an appreciation that the the, 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 the terminology actually is not just randomly slapping labels on things. Okay? Because the love is complete, therefore the evil is transformed to good. Because the love is incomplete, therefore the evil is only subjugated. So now what I have to understand, I have to understand what does it mean love is complete and how does that transform the evil? What does it mean that the love is incomplete and why does, what does it mean that it only tra- subjugates? Because so I have the rubric, but I don't necessarily have a, I have a good understanding of what these things really mean. Okay, questions before we go into the text now. I thought your godly soul only has complete love. Okay. So what I would like to do is I would like to teach you an important part about learning anything in Sidis in particular. And actually, this is also good. Can I erase this? Everyone has the basic notion. What? Yeah? Gonna ask you a question. Who is better? Someone who does more mitzvahs, a religious person who does more mitzvahs, or a person who doesn't even know that they're Jewish? What? Which is better? Oh, so what we have to do is we have to do is we have to realize that there's multiple ways of measuring this, right? So you can make one thing, which is um, you could do one thing, which is how much the person is accepts Hashem versus is rebelling. And you can do another thing, which is every mitzvah brings light into the world, right? Every sin brings darkness, right? Okay. So then there's the idea of how much light they're bringing to the world versus how much. Okay. So now, someone who's not religious, they don't know anything about Torah, but they never grew up with anything. Can you ever say they're rebelling against Hashem? No. No. So like, 
There's no way they can ever be below this line, right? Right? At best, maybe they come, become aware of stuff and they have some acceptance, or they move with a little bit of progress, right? So it could be that they're doing a lot of sins, right? It could be they're doing some mitzvahs, but when we look at this issue of whether they accept Hashem or rebel against Hashem, right? Everything is in that positive. But now we're going to look in terms of the person who, who is religious and has a sense of these things. They could actually, every time they sin, they're rebelling against Hashem. That's a pretty bad thing. But on the other hand, overall, they're doing a lot more mitzvahs and probably much fewer sins than the person who's not religious, right? So if you use one metric, you, don't, you can't answer the question. You need to realize that there are independent ways of measuring these things, right? I've used the example of two axes, but really in life there's many, many axes in which you can evaluate something, okay? This is very important because when you talk about something and you start talking using words, very often people just put it all like one above the other, okay? So... I'm going to mention three kinds of love, okay? Okay? Okay. They only use the word love in reference to Hashem, right? right? These are all, are these the same? No. No. Okay. Is there like a continuum between these things? I think, is there a continuum between these things? Like you gradually move from one to the other? These are very, very different. You could move from There's love for Hashem in all three. There is love for Hashem in all three. What is my notion of Hashem? Not love, it's right here. What is my notion of Hashem in these three things? Forget the love for a moment. If I only love Hashem, what is Hashem to me? How do I subjectively know Hashem? How did my awareness of Hashem? What is Hashem? Yeah. The only relevant thing. Is that, is that what Hashem means to this person and this person? So the Hashem this person is loving is not the Hashem this person is loving, right? In their subjective experience. Like a child, like I have, I have a four-year-old. I use my four-year-old because he can talk and communicate and he has some self-worth. I have a four-year-old. Younger, but I was a four. I have a four-year-old and I have a twelve-year-old. They both love their father, but who their father is is very different to each of them, right? My my twelve-year-old is a father. is someone that there is there's a need for for validation. There's a need for dialogue. There's a need to discuss. There's a, right. There's a whole different thing. The four-year-old is not like that, right? So the objective person in reality that they love is me. But subjectively, the one that they're loving, their beloved is not the same person in their experience. Right? Someone who only loves Hashem is someone for whom Hashem is the only relevant thing in their life. That's a different sense of who and what Hashem is than the person who loves Hashem more than anything else. There's other stuff that's also relevant to them. So their who Hashem is is different. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. But what about this person? What about the difference between person two and person three? They're more similar. They're much more similar if you compare them to number one, but I want to contrast them between them. What, what's, what's fundamentally different about one and the other? They also, number two also loves other things. But like secondary to Hashem, and the first one, Hashem is secondary to the other things that they love. Okay, so what does that say about Hashem? That's secondary in their life, and secondary in their prayer. Let me ask you a question. Translate. Not translate. Like Hashem is a word that Orthodox Jews use. What, 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 what's, uh, what does Hashem mean? I mean, it literally means the name. But, but what is Hashem? What? God? Yeah. Can you explain to me what God is? We use Hashem, God. What does that mean, God? Why is everyone uncomfortable saying what God is? It's Fine. Don't be so nervous. The source of everything. That's a good. I mean, is that is that, is that like a complete description of God and his essence? No, but I mean, does that differentiate between God and everything else? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If you love things other than God, is it God that you're, is that, is what you mean by God, God at all? No. No. That's a false God. Well, Take what you said. God is the source of everything, right? And everything. So then if you love something more than God, whatever you mean by God is not the source of everything, is it? I mean, you might call it the source of everything. You might say those words, but in your subjective experience... If God, any God which is secondary to something else is not God at all. So what are you loving? You're loving the thing that makes you feel like you should do Torah mitzvahs. I don't know whatever you're loving. You're loving something that makes you feel, I don't know whatever it is, but it's not God. It's not Hashem. Because it would be Hashem. Could Hashem be secondary to something else? Like conceptually, is Hashem a secondary thing? No. Okay. So the interesting is level two a false god or not. But level three is for sure a false god. In other words, it is when someone says, I love, you know, I mean, this is a silly thing. Let's, 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 let, let's, let's use something more profound. I was gonna say I love food. I love morality more than I love God. What's, what's, what's false about that? If God is the source of everything, he's the source of? Morality. So what makes morality moral? God. So how could you love morality more than God? Clearly, what you mean by God isn't God at all, right? So you don't love God. So now, can you say that these are three different degrees of love? Or, 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 or are these just totally different worlds? These three people live in totally different realities. They're both saying, I love God. They're both feeling feelings of attraction to a someone or some thing, some entity that's very, I don't know, ethereal and blah, 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 right? There's some religious component, but like that's where the similarity ends. Who is God? Yeah? The, kind of what you make of it. So now, it, it, the person number one and number two look at the person number three, and would they say that person loves God at all? That person loves Hashem at all? They love they love themselves, and they have no notion of God. 
No real notion of God. Maybe, maybe abstractly, philosophically, but not, not in their own experience. They don't have a sense of Hashem being the someone who's the source of all things. Because if you did, how could you love something more than Hashem? Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Just, you, you asked about Sadiq or Rosh Hashanah. You know what you call a person who loves a shem like this? You know what you call a person who loves a shem like this? Why do people sin? I'm skipping ahead now to chapter 11. Why do people sin? Why do people sin? Because they're probably thinking more than. But then what does that really mean? They don't love a shem, which means they don't know a shem at all. Now, why do these two people never sin? Well, why would they? <laughs> they do, does this person, number one, person, number two, need to something to stop them from sinning? No. No. Well, that's it. It's interesting how it's the difference between this and this, right? What causes the difference between I love only Hashem, and I love Hashem more than anything else. With that, but this is a very interesting dynamic here, right? That's chapter 12. That's the thing that Motani actually focuses on. We're not going to worry about that. But now I'm going to ask you everybody loves Hashem this way is all the same. Everyone who loves Hashem, that I only love Hashem, that all their love is the same? No. No. Could that be more complete, less complete? Could it have different levels and aspects and gradations? And in other words, let me give you a... Let me give you a here is this. Yes, no. Why, if it's in, if it's not a, if it's an incomplete love within number one, I would think it's number two. You would, so I'm trying to give you an analogy of how it's not so. Fundamentally different. Yeah. yeah. What does it mean to love pizza? You like the taste of it. What happens if you love pizza and you keep eating pizza? Forget. For, I'm not. I don't care about the love of pizza. What happens to the love of pizza if you keep love? If you eat, eat love it might pizza? go away. It might go away. You get sick of it. In other words, there is a kind of a thing that. The love of it is predicated on the fact, like, like not the, the feeling of love. Any love at all is predicated on the fact that you actually don't have that much of it. This is called the hedonist paradox, which is when you love something for the pleasure it gives you, the more you have it, the less you enjoy it, and since it's the pleasure that gives you, that makes you love it, you end up loving it. Yes. This, the reason called the hedonist paradox is the hedonist is someone who, whose only notion of love is because something makes me feel good. They pursue that. And what ends up happening is the more successful they are, the harder it becomes. Which is why the ancient Greeks were hedonists. They figured, they said that in order to be a successful hedonist, what do you have to do? Moderate. Why? Because if you overdo it, 
then you're going to kill all your ability to do anything in life. And so what does a good hedonist do? They control themselves. They, they eat a little bit of pizza. And then they don't eat pizza again for two months. So that every time they eat pizza, they really? And what do they do for that? So that's fine. So anyways, it requires a lot of like intellect and maturity to really be a successful hedonist. And this is called Epicureanism. Epicurean philosophy. But the thing is, because the notion of love here is the thing that I love kills the love. What I love is the pleasure I get of it, but having the pleasure just kills the love. This exists in many areas in life. We've all understand, yeah? Okay, what is loving learning, though? Does that work that way? Like, the more you learn, the less you love learning? Yeah. No. Why not? Because what do you love about learning? The intellectual stimulation of, like, the new information, maybe? The, the intellect, what? The challenge. The challenge of it? What? I would say it's the knowing, and this is what I mean. You could love learning whether you love pizza. If you love learning because you love knowing things, the value is in the knowing itself, right? Now, knowing is, is if it's just the challenge, what happens? If it's just the challenge, it gets pressure. Right? If it's just the sense of satisfaction that I've mastered something after you have it, it's like, well, I mean, that gets boring. But if you have value for the actual stuff that you now know, like knowing makes you in some sense a bigger person, a deeper person, well, that actually doesn't tire out. In other words, and not in other words, the thing that I'm loving is not how it makes me feel, but the fact that it actually carries meaning to me. Now what about my children? That's something else entirely, because now my love means taking into account someone else's experience, right? Loving my children means not just how I experience them, but how they experience their own lives, right? Because that forces me to have an awareness of you know, myself. These are very different notions of love, right? They're all the same in the sense there's an attraction to something, but like, that's where the similarity is, right? Now, you could take a person. Can they love pizza more intensely, less intensely? Could they love the learning more intensely, less intensely? Could love of learning be, um, be something that really penetrates their being, or could just be something that's a side part of their life, right? Well, people loving their children. Uncomfortable thing to say, but some people love their children more, and some people love their children. Some people's love for their children is integrated into their whole thing person, and sometimes their love for their children is kind of like a side thing that pulls against the rest of their, right? So we can talk about how whole and complete each of these loves are. That's one dimension. We can also talk about the differences between these loves, and that's a different dimension. If you love only Hashem, what do you have a sense of? You have a sense of the truth that Hashem is the only being, right? But now, can I speak about how that affects you in a more complete way, in a less complete way? I mean, we have to flesh out what that is, but I could. That's entirely different than this. This person's loving Hashem is an entirely different notion of what Hashem is, and what it means to be close to Him. And that itself could be more or less complete. You see what I'm saying? Like, like, there's, there's the kind of love it is, and then how it features in the reality of the person. Two people love their children. One person's sense of loving their children is that from time to time they take their kids and they go on a vacation, it's all wonderful, and then the rest of the time, what happens? They're, they're, they're completely oblivious to their children. And the other person, in everything they do, there's a sense of how will this affect my children, how will this enhance my children's life, right? They're both loving for their children the love of their children, but it's a very different thing, the way it plays out in life, of course. If someone loves their children completely, 
like yeah. then okay then you could say I love my children I only love my children but if they are doing that, that what you're saying taking their kids on vacation and then one second, one second. I want before you I want to preempt before I am not saying that these three things are the same as these three things what I'm saying is I made three different kinds of love right yeah three different notions of love based on three different senses of what you're trying after and I realize that even there, I can speak about variations in each of the loves themselves, right? Right. Okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm not explaining, that's what we're learning the text. That when we learn the text, we're going to be talking about, the rest of the chapter, we're going to talk about which kind of love? Someone who only loves Hashem. And we're going to explore how that kind of love actually can come in more or less complete ways. Similar to, but in no way the same as, how any of these loves can have variations. But they're not the same. And the point is, this we're going to see it. I'm not explaining. So like, don't, don't ask me about question on this. We're going to see that the variations in this never get it to the point that it looks more than something else. It never becomes the second kind of love. Even the no, that's what we have to learn. That's the explanation. We're going to talk about different kinds of love, different kinds of levels of love. But so what makes a tzaddik a tzaddik is that they're right. Hashem is the only thing that's real, and therefore the only thing they love is, which is the message the godly soul is really trying to convey, right? And what makes a person a Russia is what? The notion that there's something besides the Shem? Mm, no. The notion that other things are entities of themselves. Where's the real problem? Is the problem this person's notion of other things or the problem this person's notion of the Shem? This person, not, the problem is not that they think other things are important. The problem is they can they think that things can be more important than Hashem, so that the flaw is in their sense of Hashem. This person has Hashem completely right, and this person has Hashem completely wrong. And this person is complicated. Right? Okay, we're going we're gonna to talk about this, and then we get to chapter 12. Good? Now, The explanation of the matter, that's how the chapter, that's how the paragraph starts, is that a completely righteous person is whom the evil has been converted to goodness and who's constantly called a righteous man who prospers. But we already know that means a righteous person who has? Who has an awareness. Who has, what's the actual Hebrew there? Is it who has good. Why? Because the animal soul's evil has been transformed to? Good. Good. Has completely divested himself of the filthy garments of evil. That is to say, he utterly despises pleasures of this world, finding no enjoyment in human pleasures of merely gratifying physical appetites instead of seeking service of God. Okay. So this person, the, the evil has been transformed to good because he has completely removed the garments of evil. What are the garments of evil? Evil thought. What does it say? Let's look in the text. Don't guess. Where's your text? Oh. That's sad. So someone tell me what the garments of evil, right? This love, it removes, they completely remove the garments of evil. What are the garments of evil? Pleasures of this world. Mm-hmm. Why are the pleasures of this world, actually, to be fair, the pleasures of this world are not called the garments of evil. It's, what, we'd be a little bit more precise, not the pleasures of the world. No, it's, the apple is not, you know, the apple that tastes good is not the garment of evil. What's the garment of evil? Finding enjoyment in the apple, right? Which is something that's within the person, not within the apple, right? Or whatever the thing might be. Okay. 
Why do you think that we refer in the text to the ability to find enjoyment in physical things or human activities? Why do we call that a garment? That's an odd... An, it is additional to your essence. To whose essence? You have two souls. I mean, you have three, but we're going to ignore the, the, the third soul, right? The, the fact that I enjoy this cup of coffee, which I did. It's much better than the men's coffee, by the way. The men's program has, like, the really bad Israeli instant stuff. This is, you know, as far as instant coffee goes, pretty good. Shows, shows how, how low my standards are, but nonetheless, I did enjoy this cup of coffee. That is additional to my essence, the essence of who? My, my godly soul, my animal soul, my physical body. Like, well, yes, in addition to which essence? The animal soul. Why is my enjoying this coffee additional to the essence of the animal soul? Fish. What? It's not a fish. So pleasure, just, just deriving pleasure is just an additional quality. It's not the essence of the animal soul. So... A garment is something that's in addition, but, but you wear a garment, right? So like you have a person, person puts on the garment. How is me enjoying this cup of coffee like putting on a piece of clothing? Is it because it's like connecting you to the material and it's... What the, the essence of my animal soul is the capacity to derive pleasure from things. Does it necessarily have to derive pleasure from cups of coffee? So, the fact that I derive pleasure from coffee is not the essence of the animal soul, it is a garment. What is the essence of the animal soul is? Derive pleasure from... The capacity and the need to derive pleasure per se. In other words, like this. Remember how we, in the previous class I said there's a lot of stuff to the animal soul? Right? The animal soul allows me to see. It, it, you know, it governs digestion, right? It helps the immune system. It does a lot of things. But those things are all just secondary elements. Right? Like, what's the... Let me give you an example. What is the essence of a business? To make money. To make money, right? Now, does a business need a janitor? Sure. Probably, because if you, the place is dirty, it's hard to do the stuff that needs to make money, Right? But the business is not in the business of hiring janitors. The business is in the business of making money, right? So now, the animal soul is in the business of what? Desire pleasure. Desiring and ex- experiencing pleasure. Feeling good? Now, if your immune system is not going to function, is that going to really put a damper on that? Yes. Yeah. So it's, it, ha- it, also has a, it also has a little defense force called the immune system, right? It also does a bunch of other stuff, right? But those things are technical. Right? But, so, but now, can a business, can your business plan just be, my business plan is to make money? Is that a business plan? No. You need an actual plan, right? That's the way, the mode in which you're going to try and make your money, right? So there's three levels to a business. There's the essence of the business, which is to make money. There's the modality of how that is, which is the business model, right? And then there's the practicalities of like having a janitor, right? <laughs> which is not really part of business at all, but if you don't have a janitor, things are going to get dirty and then stuff's not going to work properly. So if you want to leave them, there, right, there's the kind of the infrastructure stuff that you need. The fact that your animal soul ha- you know, is facilitate, it, it gets you to have an immune system, sense perception, lets you know that you're hungry, that you need nutrition, right? Does uh, digestion, 
is involved in, 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 in active procreation. All that stuff, that's all just technical. That's just infrastructure. Because if you don't have that stuff, things aren't going to work. But the essence of the animal soul is just in feeling good. But you can't, your, your life can't just be to feel good. How do you feel good? What makes you feel good? And that, that is a garment because that in principle could, the animal soul could divest itself of and derive pleasure from other things. In fact, have you not done that in your life? You used to derive pleasure from things that you no longer derive pleasure from? So what happened is that you evolved, if you use the, 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 the metaphor of the business, you evolved your business model, right? Now, anyone involved in business should know that if you have a business model that really worked for you in the past, is it so easy to change your business model? What's step number one? If you're gonna change your business model. That's right, which means you have to really divest yourself of the old business model before you really adopt. So what does that mean the animal soul is going to have to do? Divest itself of deriving pleasure from any non-godly thing and only then will it acquire a sense of how to derive pleasure from God. Okay. So what is, what is the, what is the, right now we're focusing not on the complete or incomplete love. We're just talking about the effective love in the animal soul. What does this love do? There's actually two parts. Number one, what does it do? Is it divests, it causes the animal soul to let go of the way it enjoys things which then allows it to take on a new way of enjoying things. So actually being a, being a tzaddik who has good is actually a two-step process, right? Divesting itself of the old garments and then transforming that capacity to feel good into something that is totally in alignment with God and God alone. So by the way, what does that mean? Does a completely righteous person, who do they enjoy life? Yeah. Yeah? In fact, arguably... Who enjoys life the most? Right? Because think about it. If the only thing you're capable of enjoying is God, and God is available where? So then what are you always... You're always enjoying life. Right? That's a far cry from a person who... Now, the problem is I read this, and what jumps out at me, because I haven't changed my modality of enjoying things, is, well, you mean they don't enjoy eating, they don't enjoy walking the park, they don't like, and so it just sounds very, like, bleh. Now, which is the more difficult step? The first. Why is that the more difficult step? You would assume it's automatic. It's actually not automatic. Okay. But let's just think from your own experience for a second. Forget godliness, yeah? Think about something you enjoy. And think about something you don't enjoy. What's easier, to cultivate an enjoyment of what you don't yet enjoy or to stop enjoying the thing that you do enjoy? Stop enjoying. That's easier? Oh, easy. Oh, no. Cultivate. To cultivate. Cultivate. Now, you run into a problem. If the thing that you're trying to enjoy really goes against the stuff that you do enjoy, you're going to end up with a problem, right? Like, um, the, you, you, you have a limitation here, right? But, for instance, if you don't enjoy a particular food, for example, right, you could actually cultivate an enjoyment of that food, and there's a, there's a way to do that. If you don't enjoy a particular 
kind of comedy. You don't enjoy a particular kind of literature. You don't enjoy a particular kind of art. Are there things you could do to come to an enjoyment of it and appreciation? Yes. Yeah. At least appreciation. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and appreciation is a level of enjoyment. I mean, there's, it, it, enjoyment, appreciation, pleasure, right? these are all within the same realm. But what if I do enjoy something to come to a place where I no longer appreciate that, I no longer speaks to me? That's extremely hard. And the question is, why is that hard? Because taking off an article of clothing is not hard and we're comparing it to clothing, right? So where's the difference? Yeah. That's a workaround. In other words, that's, and that only works for certain kinds of things. Things that it's entirely just like, the only thing that speaks to you is the pleasure in it. But if the pleasure is induced by something more meaningful, that won't work. Okay? Um, and even then, it, what it, it doesn't real. If, if you think about it in a more, in a more fundamental way, you're not real, all you're doing is you're not liking this food, but you like other food. You didn't really change your... Like no one, like it's very hard to eat so much that you no longer like food. Period. Right? You like that. Um, that's actually why the hedonists can stay liking food. They just have to know how to like vary things enough and not gorge and like you know. Then they can enjoy every meal as a culinary experience, right? Why they, there's people like they travel the world for the culinary experience because as long as you make sure that your your variety is sufficiently regulated, right, you can just keep doing it. But you're not really you're not really divesting yourself of the enjoyment of things. It's a more of a technical issue. How do you, like, why is it so hard? I can, div- I can take off clothing. Why can't I just divest myself of what I enjoy? What's the difference between the analogy of wearing clothing and the mode of which I enjoy things? What kinds of things I enjoy and how I enjoy them? Why are those different? One's external and one's internal. Explain. What do you mean external and internal? Clothes are never a part of you, right? In other words, clothes are something that is entirely from the outside that I'm simply putting on top of myself. The mode in which I enjoy something is much more like a mold that has shaped me. So if you have Play-Doh, right, and you shape the Play-Doh, right, in some sense it's like a garment because you're, you're imposing the shape from without, but the Play-Doh actually takes on that shape. You're changing the thing. Now, is the Play-Doh fundamentally different? It's still Play-Doh, right? When the plastic is molded into a cup, it's still fundamentally plastic. But you have to, but, right? You, but, but, but it's not something that's been put on top of the plastic. Plastic has, an, in a surface sense, in a, become that thing, even though essentially it still remains just, in essence, plastic. So in other words, and this is, the, this is something that, that is a little bit uncomfortable. We are what we enjoy. Because what does it mean to enjoy something is not just you, is that the animal soul has taken on that form, taken on that way of being. So let's say, for instance, I enjoy humor. And one of the kinds of humor I enjoy is humor at the expense of other people. For example, right? Which I think is actually quite common. Well, what does that say about the kind of human being I am? <laughs> I'm a cruel person. Now, am I entirely cruel? No, but you have cruel 
right? But it is very important, right? This is not saying, right? And this is this is not saying, oh, there's a little aspect of cruelty hanging around inside me. No, 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 no. I am cruel. Because this is the rule. Whatever you enjoy is a shape that you yourself have taken on. No, this is not Tanya. You are cruel. Now, you are also kind. You're also compassionate. You're also, right? You're all, in other words, <laughs> yes. No, but then where does that take the thing that we're all good? We're Who said we're all good? Because we're always all good. Why? But we're not talking the nefesh elokis. The godly soul doesn't make you a person. The godly soul is something is something transcendent beyond that. People are people. You as a person. I don't want to believe this. <laughs> now, by the way, I just want to stop for a second. Yeah. This is this is like this is entirely the animal. So I want to make a point. And let you ask a question. Then we need to go, um, and we'll resume this tomorrow. If I do something that hurts somebody, that does not make me a cruel person. Why not? Because you can choose to stop doing that. Right? Even intention. I can do something that hurts a person intentionally, and I still doesn't make me a cruel person. It's about what you're enjoying. That's right. Sounds like this. Let's say, I've done this, let's say I have to remove a student from a class. And I know full well this is going to hurt them, it's going to pain their... Yeah. Does that make me a cruel person? No. How do we know? How do I feel about doing that? No. I don't feel very good about doing that. It, it, it pains me. So in that respect, that's revealing that I'm, that's actually revealing I'm not a cruel. I might have some other reason I need to do something. I'm doing a full knowing this is hurting somebody. The, the thing that reflects you as a human being is the modes in which you are capable of deriving enjoyment. Which means, are we good people on the ethical sense or are we evil people in the ethical sense? The answer is we are both. We enjoy helping others. We enjoy people being helped. We enjoy being kind and compassionate. We also enjoy a good joke at someone else's expense. We don't, right? And, and, so, and now, this is what the Altareb is getting at, right? That level of being, is that the essence of the animal soul? It's not the essence of the animal soul, but it's not an external garment like a piece of clothing. It's a garment in the sense, it's, it's something that the animal soul doesn't need to be in its essence, but it is the mode, the form, the shape of its essence. Okay, question, and then I have to answer, and then we're going to go and we'll resume this discussion tomorrow. Maybe. Okay. Every other Hasidic class seems to like contradict Yes. Do you know why? That's part of the reason, but there's a deeper reason. The truth is usually much deeper than one single perspective can capture. So just like a physical object, if you only see it from one side, you really understand what it, its shape. You need to look at it from the top and from the bottom, from the side, and then you, right? If you only ever saw this marker from one side, right? You wouldn't know a lot about it, right? But the fact you can see it from different sides and what your brain does is it puts that together and gives you a sense of its, three, of its depth, the three dimensions of it. The truth is like that. Anything that is really true has to be seen from different perspectives. And that's actually why I should have created different people to see things differently. So that in their coming together, 
people adopt other people's points of view and can un- see the, 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 the depth, the full depth of the truth. It's not a flaw, it's a feature. It's the way it's supposed to work. Which is why the Torah so, emphasizes so much about the importance of studying with other people. So the truth is that what I'm saying is the truth from a certain point of view and what you're saying is the truth from a certain point of view. And the ultimate truth is how those things actually are simultaneously true in a way that they don't detract from each other. And that requires a person to reflect to get to that kind of depth. But for our purpose, what I want to is what you enjoy is actually a, a, at, on the level of the human being, that is you, that is me. And it turns out that we might not like ourselves so much when we start thinking about that. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that people say that, 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 that sometimes is like, has a truth to it, but it's very, very shallow. Like for instance, oh, it's not me, it's just with my behavior. No, no, sometimes it really is me. Sometimes it really is me. In fact, a lot of times it really is me. And it's easier for me to pretend it's not me. Maybe it's easier to make a change while ignoring it's not me, but then the change is going to be what kind of a change? A very superficial change. It's a change of the behavior. It doesn't change the underlying issue. To change the underlying issue, to even address the underlying issue, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't just the behavior. It wasn't just the, my right reasoning. It's like on some deep level, I feel like I am living life when I'm able to laugh at someone else's sorrow up to a point. And like, if I can't be honest, like that's, then, then like, that's a problem, right? Yeah, does that mean like that I have to like hate myself over that? I don't know, it's a different discussion, right? But that's the level in which the tzaddik, the perfect tzaddik's love for Hashem gets, is, is, he's divesting of all of that. All of that is being left aside, right? You have this whole, you know, Plato edifice of, of a human being, and what is his love for Hashem doing to it? It's smashing it into a mush and then reshaping it into something else. But the underlying fact that the animal soul enjoys, and that's what life is about for it, that doesn't change. So the animal has to first divest itself, and then it could. To yeah, but the thing is, if the animal soul is doing it itself, can it truly divest of all of its modes? We'll talk about that tomorrow. Can you? Can you? Can can, can something change itself fundamentally? All right. I will see you tomorrow.